Since I've been here, which is only since, uh, what, July, uh, we've had three new members in the congregation, at least three. Uh, they're, they're little ones, uh, three births, if I've counted correctly, and I know that we have others along the way, uh, I'm not sure about here, but different places around the world, and it's a wonderful thing. My wife and I had the opportunity to try to uh, find a name for a child on more than one occasion, and it never worked out, but uh, choosing a name for a child is, is sometimes a daunting task. For some people, it's very easy. They simply name a child after somebody in the family, uh, maybe an uncle or a father. A lot of times you have the same name for the, the son as you have for the father, but they may add junior or the third or uh, something along that line. Uh, some couples name children after a friend that they had, someone that was very special uh, in their their lives, and they want to name that child after that individual, I suppose, because there's a positive connotation to it. Uh, with my wife and I, oftentimes, trying to come up with names, we'd think of a name one of us would, and then we'd think of, oh, no, I don't want to name it that because that reminds me of somebody. And uh, it seemed like the names I came up with reminded her of somebody who's something uh, negative and vice versa. And of course, I used to kind of pull her chain a little bit by saying I wanted to name it Sherman. I uh, probably offended somebody here, but she thought that sounded too much like a tank, so uh, we... <laughs> I used to kid her about that, but every name has its positives and its negatives. Some choose a biblical name, such as David or Joshua, Ruth or Esther. Uh, then there's the standby. You go to the book that has names in it, and it explains what each name means. And you look through that, and you're trying to find a name that, that is suitable for what you think this child is going to be, what you hope this child is going to be. And you certainly don't want to come up with a, a name that means something like Golden Pansy if it's a boy. Uh, nor do you want a name like uh, Mighty Warrior if it's a girl. Of course, that might be dating me a little bit too much to say that, because I suppose that there are plenty of parents around today that would like to have a girl's name meaning Mighty Warrior because they watch these programs where you have the woman, you know, uh, kicking the, the men around all over the place and, uh, you know, the very unreal situation there. But we try to find a name that is appropriate. Of course, children don't always turn out the way that we, we think they're going to. Uh, they sometimes turn out a little bit different than the name that we might humanly choose. Well, we're going to see today in the sermon that names are important to God and that there is power in a name. There's especially power in a good name. And, of course, that's what we want. There is importance that God places on names. He names people for what they are. As an example, in Genesis, the 17th chapter, and we find that this happens a number of places throughout Scripture, but here in Genesis, the 17th chapter, and verse 5, we read the following. It says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, or Abraham, as we often say it. For I have made you a father of many nations." 
Now it is evident there that the meaning of Abraham or Abraham is a father of a multitude or a father of many nations. God spells out exactly why he changed that name. There are, of course, uh, commentaries that you could look at that give all kinds of reasons and explanations and why this letter was added and, and so forth. But it's very evident from the context that he wanted uh, Abraham's name to be a name of a father of a multitude or of a multitude of nations. We can look in this same chapter in verse uh, 15. Where it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And we see that uh, the name Sarah uh, had to do with, with princess. And her, that's what her name was going to be. Uh, we find in Genesis, the 25th chapter, Genesis 25. And verse 25, we have some interesting names here, uh, chosen by uh, the father of these twins and the mother. In Genesis 25, verse 25, it says, And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. And as the margin points out, Esau is the word meaning hairy. Now, I don't know that Prince Harry in England is Harry, but that's what the name meant when they said Esau. It meant Harry. He's Harry. And, of course, also there's another uh, a word that was used for him that meant red as well. So he was named what he looked like when he came out. They also named Jacob, uh, Jacob for a reason, uh, it says here in verse 26, Afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And as the margin points out here, uh, it means supplanter or deceitful. Or one, literally it meant one who takes the heel, but one who is deceptive in a certain way. Uh, he was uh, grabbing hold of his heel and, and uh, pulling him back. So we find here that their names, the names that were used in the Bible were names that God had given. In some cases, they were names that individuals, parents, had given to their children based on various characteristics or what they hoped they would be. We also read in the 32nd chapter that God changed Jacob's name to something a little bit nicer. In Genesis 32 and verse 28, it says, he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And as it says there, prince with God. So instead of supplanter, it would be prince with God. So God changed his name to be something more suitable to what he would eventually become. In the New Testament, we see that God changed the name of a man by the name of Simeon to something else. Let's turn over there in uh, John, the first chapter, and we'll see. In, in this particular case, it, it was not so much a, a change of name as a, a defining of the name in a different language. 
uh, it was the same name essentially, but a different language. And he became better known in the, the other language as has come down today. Uh, here in John 1, verses 40 uh, through 42, it says, One of the two who, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, he first found his own brother Simeon, or Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Now notice right there that we're talking in two different languages, Messiah being one language, Christ another language. Uh, both meaning the anointed one. And then verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Kephas, which is translated a stone. So we have two languages, Kephas and stone there, uh, or, or Peter. Um, you'd be called uh, Kephas, but then that's also a Peter, which... Uh, we find also means the same thing. It means a stone or a rock. So we find that there are various languages here uh, that, that Simon and, and Kephas and Peter uh, having to do with a stone or a rock. So in some cases we find a totally different name. In other cases we find that a name was translated from one, from one language unto another. We find that Saul's name was changed to Paul. And that's interesting because we don't know exactly the meaning of it. We have a couple different theories. One is that Paul meant little, which there's speculation that he was small of stature. But then there are others who say that the word is of a different language, comes from a, the origin of a different language, which meant uh, extraordinary or wonderful. So we may not know ourselves for sure, but we know that God changed the name for a reason. And we don't know exactly when, but we do see that uh, he, his name was changed there. You can read that in, um, I think it's 13th chapter, I didn't write that down. But anyway, you can see where his name was changed uh, from Saul to Paul. And it was always Saul before that, and after that it's always Paul. And Luke, the first chapter, Luke 1 and verse 13, we find that the one who prepared the way for the Messiah, for Christ, uh, was given a specific name. In Luke 1, verse 13, and this was name prepared by God, said that the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your a prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, John uh, means grace or mercy uh, of the eternal. Grace or mercy of the eternal. And that's a very fitting name when you think of the one that is preparing the way for the Messiah. In the 59th verse of this chapter... We see that Zacharias was not able to speak for a period of time, and then this young child was born, and it says, verse 59, So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise a child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. In other words, the father's name, transferring that to the son and so forth, which is a very common practice, and was somewhat expected, we, we seem to find here. And his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. 
Now, the father was the one that normally would name the name, and so this was a little bit surprising. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made sign to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. So he had been uh, a mute for... uh, most of the length of the time there that uh, this child had, from the time this child had been conceived, and so for about nine months he couldn't speak. But he wrote, his name is John. And that was something that startled them because that was not the way you normally did things. But God had a name in mind for this one who would prepare the way for the one who would bring grace and truth and uh, salvation to not only his people of Israel, but to mankind as a whole. In Luke, the second chapter, and verse 21, Luke 2 and verse 21, it says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, this is Christ, we find, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, Jesus means saved or delivered, Or uh, put in a state of safety. Different names, translation from different uh, sources. But uh, we we sometimes don't have an exact translation from one language to another. But I think that gives the idea of it. Saved, delivered, or put in a state of safety. And so Jesus was the one that was going to bring salvation to mankind. And God wanted him to be named accordingly. Named for what he was. Now, what is it that is in a name? A name means more than the phonetic sound or a dictionary definition. It means a whole lot more. A name carries with it the very personality, the character, the accomplishments, and the failures of the individual. In short, it is one's reputation. When we think of certain names of cities, for example, we think of the name Philadelphia. We think of brotherly love. But we think of it in the context of the church of God and what that is to mean uh, of a, a, a group of people, a church where there is truly brotherly love. But more than that, it shows that uh, these are people who have hung on to the truth. They have kept God's name and have done not, or God's name and have not denied it. And there, there are certain characteristics when we read Revelation, the third chapter, about Philadelphia. When we think of Laodicea, there's one word that comes to our mind instantaneously. Because it is the character of that group of people, and that is lukewarm. Now, there's more to it than that because it says they are rich and increased with goods. That's their attitude. They're rich and increased with goods and need of nothing. And yet they're spiritually poor, blind, and naked. But the one word lukewarm really sums up in just in one word the nature of the last era of the church. And so a name carries a lot with it. It carries the reputation of what it is. When we think of Abraham... We know that it means, among other things, uh, father of many nations, but it also means the father of the faithful, as we read there in Romans, the fourth chapter, verse 11. It means complete trust in God. 
Genesis 22. When you think about, he was a, a man, just like all of us. He was a human being like we are, as we are. And, and God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one that you had waited so many years for, and I want you to take him to a, a mountain area about three miles away. I'm sorry, three miles, three days. Yeah, three days away. And I want you to sacrifice him. Now, it's so easy to read that and so difficult to comprehend how big of a trial that would have been. And this wasn't some spook in the night. This was not some sort of a, a, a demon spirit talking to the man. He, this was someone that, that Abraham knew. And he was telling him to do that. Now, I wonder how many of us would have had the courage to do what God said to do. And I, I always like to qualify this by saying God is not going to ask you to do something like that. So don't get that in your mind. Sometimes people have fear and influence or something that causes them, you know, every once in a while you read of some woman drowning her children or, or something like that. That's not what God is, is going to do. This was a one-time thing for a specific purpose, and God wanted to portray that, what he was going to do with his own son later on. There was a very specific purpose in it. But how difficult that must have been. And this is one of the reasons we call him the father of the faithful, because he was willing to put God first and his son second. It's an amazing thing. And no wonder he is so great in the Scriptures and will be in the kingdom of God. He had complete trust in God. We also know that he had human weaknesses. He shaded the truth a bit about his wife on a couple occasions, not just once, but twice, where he said, well, she's my sister. Well, that is partly true, but not entirely true. So we also know that he had certain weaknesses. And when we think of the name of Abraham, we think of all of it that's put together of who he was. Being willing to sacrifice his son. Being willing to go to a different land when God told him to go there. And to apparently immediately follow God's command. Not wait around, but do what God told him to do. This is what he was all about. And this is why he will be so great in the kingdom of God. In the same way, God's name refers to his character and reputation. Now, there are those who focus on the phonetic pronunciation of what is known as the tetragrammaton. That is the Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Uh, some try to change that to Jehovah, which is, there was no J uh, uh, in the, the language, but... They, they think that we have to use this tetragrammaton. Now, I'm not going to get into a long explanation on this, but people focus on how to pronounce God's name in one particular language as opposed to allowing for God's name to be translated uh, into other languages, and that becomes a gospel to them. That becomes the focus of everything. It's not the only thing they, they teach. In fact, there are a lot of them that keep the Sabbath and the holy days as well. But they focus on that 
and they miss the whole point of what God is, is saying about the name of God. Let's notice Nehemiah 9. I'm not going to go into a great explanation, but just give three scriptures on this and then point you to an article that I think is very important for all of us to be aware of. Uh, we'll go to Nehemiah in the ninth chapter and verses 9 and 10. Breaking into a thought here, he says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. It's the you is referring to God. He says, You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You made a name for yourself. When we use that expression today, sometimes we refer to somebody, he made a name for himself. We think of he made a name for himself in sports, in acting, as a politician, or something along that line. We don't think of he made John or Sam or Mary or something like that. We don't think that way. We think of reputation. We think of what that person has become in the eyes of others. And here it says that of God. You made a name for yourself as it is this day. He's not talking about how he pronounced his name. He's talking about what he is. Now let's notice over in Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter. Jeremiah 32nd, uh, 32. Jeremiah 32, and we'll pick it up in verse 20. It says, You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, again speaking of God, uh, to this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. God had made himself a name. Again, it has nothing to do with how you pronounce the name, or what language you speak of God, but it had to do with what he was. There's one scripture that I think really settles this whole uh, argument about the name of God uh, better than any other, and that's found back in Exodus, the 34th chapter, because it tells us what it means to proclaim the name of God. In Exodus 34, And verse 4. Here is Moses. And it says, So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. This is after the golden calf incident. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Eternal had commanded him. We usually say eternal when it's all capital L-O-R-D, all capital letters. That's the sense of it, the one that was, is, and will be, uh, the eternal one. Uh, as the eternal had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the, the eternal described, I'm sorry, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the eternal. So here he is going to proclaim the name of the Y-H-V-H. And how did he proclaim the name? 
of Yahweh or uh, Yahweh or the Eternal or Lord, however we want to write it here. How did he proclaim that name? Verse 6, And the Eternal passed before him and proclaimed, The Eternal, the Eternal God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So the proclamation of his name had to do with his character, his reputation, forgiving iniquity, being full of mercy and so forth, and visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, children's generation, and so forth. But merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. This is what it meant to proclaim the name of God. And I think that that's a very important scripture that is so often overlooked by those that get hung up in this sacred name uh, discussion. Now, we have a, a reprint article, uh, R112, The Truth About Sacred Names by John O'Gwynn. And it goes into a discussion of uh, the name of God and what it means to uphold God's name, what it means really to keep the third commandment, and how those who try to focus on the wrong aspect of it are, are totally wrong and misled. And I would encourage all of you to get that article so that you're familiar with that, because every once in a while it comes up that somebody gets caught up in the sacred names, as we refer to it, sacred names discussion. So what does your name mean? What does your name as you sit here today? Does it mean trustworthy, loyal, faithful? Does it mean kind and compassionate? Does it mean a true friend? Does it mean strong during times of crisis? What does your name mean? What is your reputation amongst others? Now, when we speak of reputation, we understand that one's reputation is not going to be the same with everyone. And we know that Moses uh, was a great man. His reputation, we look back on, is very great. But we also know that during his lifetime, he had his critics, didn't he? And so... When we refer to reputation, when we refer to a name, we understand that not everybody is going to see it the same way. But what is our reputation with God? Because that's what really counts. Our reputation with men can rise and fall. But it's our reputation with God. And how does God see you? And how does he see me? Is our reputation that of a fornicator or an adulterer or adulteress? You think of past presidents. What is their reputation? Some of them don't have a very good reputation, do they? Because of their moral shortcomings. And they've taken a reputation that could have been very good, and they've destroyed it through improper behavior. 
Does it mean arrogant? Is that your name? Does somebody think of you as arrogant or contentious, always argument, arguing about something, always disputing something, always disagreeing, always being in opposition? Are you reliable or unreliable? There are some people that you just know that they're going to be there, they're always reliable. I remember a man gave a, a speech in Spokesman Club many years ago, and he was the type of person that worked in the auto industry and had to get up every morning about 4 o'clock, get in his car and drive to work and be there relatively early. And one day he came in late because he had a flat tire or some uh, problem with his vehicle and he came in late. And his boss jumped all over him and started chewing him out. And he said, why are you chewing me out? So-and-so takes off every Friday. Somebody else does this. Somebody else comes in late all the time. And this is the first time I've been late in 30 years, or whatever it was. And he said, because I rely on you. That's what his boss thought. He said, I rely on you. That's your reputation in effect. And you've disappointed me this time. Now, I'm sure the boss got over it. He thought about it, I'm sure. But that was his reputation. He knew that this man could be counted on. He would always be there. And when he wasn't, it was an aberration. It was something very different. There are people that you just know that you can count on them. What a wonderful reputation to have. And in today's world, and I suppose always, it's been a characteristic that uh, it is among the few as opposed to everybody. Some people are just more reliable than others. You know that they're steady. You know that they'll, they'll come through. So what is your, your reputation? Are you a complainer, a whiner? Are you unbalanced, a drunkard, or selfish? Or do you have the higher characteristics of compassionate, loyal, faithful, kind, etc.? What is in your name? What is your name mean? What does it mean to others? God tells us that a good name is to be greatly treasured. Notice Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22 and verse 1. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. There are a lot of people who sell out for riches. You have some of the icons of uh, Wall Street, wolves of Wall Street, various other individuals who will do anything to be rich. There's a a fellow on television. uh, It's always saying, where's the money? Show me the money. And... It has to do with one of these shows where people have inventions and all that type of thing, and they bring it out. But he, he also is a, a newscaster uh, up in Canada, and uh, talking about finances and everything, but it's all about money. Now, I suppose he's probably a fairly nice fellow, but people develop these personas for television uh, because that, that helps. You know, if you've got one person for something and somebody against I don't know what he's like in his real life, but he has that reputation, a certain hard-nosed, uh, where's-the-money approach toward life. 
And there are people like that. Is that a good reputation to have? Is that what we really want to be thought of? But a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And yet there are many people who would take the riches over a good name. And I know that we all think, well, that wouldn't be me. But sometimes people fool themselves, don't they, in real life, when it comes down to a choice between doing the right thing and riches. Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. And verse 1. It says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now that's hard for us to understand the latter part of that, the day of death than the day of one's birth. But when we're born, we've done nothing. We've accomplished nothing. It's a wonderful day, isn't it, when a child is born, especially for the parents and the grandparents. It's an exciting time. But at the end of one's life, when it's all said and done, when it's all been written in living, that, that really shows what we are, what we have accomplished. There's something special about that as well. And especially when we understand that there is a resurrection. Without a resurrection, I don't know how we can say that the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. But because of the resurrection, because of what God is holding out to you and to me, we can see, and we'll see a little bit later, that that's a, it's a good thing when we have run our course, so to speak. We've run a good course. God guards His own name. He protects His own name. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus, the 20th chapter, is talking about that very thing. One of the ten is designed to protect God's name and reputation. In verse 7 it says, You shall not take the name of the eternal your God in vain, for the eternal will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God is not going to hold us guiltless. The uh, theological word book of the Old Testament has something to say about this particular verse. The word that is used there, vain, and I'd like to read a little bit here from it. The most familiar use of this word is in the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Literally, the sentence reads, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God. And then it gives the Hebrew. The same construction is noted above in Jeremiah passage. Before examining the Decalogue uh, reference, it will be instructive to observe how the word is used elsewhere. And then it goes into showing that. Then it says toward the end of it, it says the evidence points to the fact that taking the Lord's name, i.e. his reputation, in vain will surely cover profanity, as that term is understood today, or swearing falsely in the Lord's name. But it will also include using the Lord's name lightly, unthinkingly, or by rote. 
Perhaps this is captured by the Septuagint's translation of the word thoughtlessly. thoughtlessly. In other words, it mentions by rote, unthinkingly. I find that I've been guilty of that in prayer. You get a little sleepy or something, and pretty soon you, you start referring to Father or God or Lord and, and just saying it without really thinking through what you're saying. It, it becomes a filler expression, doesn't it? Sometimes in the prayers that we have at services, individuals will use the expression Lord or Father about every fifth or sixth word. It's a nervous habit, isn't it? Now, I don't say this so that everybody is judging the person that's praying up here, but I'm just saying we have to be aware of that and be very careful about just repeating Lord or Father or God over and over again thoughtlessly, using it as a filler word. That's not exactly what God had in mind to have his name used as a filler. Now when it's used thoughtfully, we're using it as addressing God because that's what we want to do in that particular sentence or something. That's one thing. But just to use God's name over and over again without any thoughtfulness is really violating what God had in mind. We avoid swearing using God's name in vain in that way, uh, we avoid raising our hand and, and uh, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God, is what people say. Uh, we, we avoid that like the plague, but we need to be very careful how we use God's name even in our prayers. Ezekiel, the 20th chapter, Ezekiel 20. We find that God protects His name, His reputation, and so should we. But in in this sense, this is God protecting His name, something that you and I can't do in this context. But Ezekiel, the 20th chapter, he mentions over and over again, how he does certain things to protect his reputation. We'll start here in verse 1. It says, It came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Eternal and sat before me. Then the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Now, they came to God, or they came to, to Ezekiel, and they said, we, we want you to inquire of God concerning a particular matter. And God said, look, they're not sincere in this. They say they want to inquire of me, but they really don't want to. And so, verse 4 says, will you judge them, son of man, will you judge them? Then make known to them the abominations of their fathers, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand and an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob, 
and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand and oath to them, saying, I am the Eternal, your God. I gave a sermon several years ago about this expression, I am the Eternal, your God. And, and I was focusing mostly on the book of Leviticus. Because it says over and over again, you should do thus and such, because I am the Eternal, your God. I am the one that sets the standard. And what I find interesting, somebody had written me, one of our members out there, and pointed out something I didn't know at the time, and that is that Ezekiel used that expression more than it's used in Leviticus. And here's one of those occasions. He says, when I, back then, time Leviticus, whatever, I said, I am the eternal, your God. But when you read the book of Ezekiel, he says, then you will know that I am the eternal, your God. Or as he told him at the time originally that I am the eternal, I am the standard. But since you haven't figured out, I'm going to do certain things. And then you will know that I am the eternal, your God. And you see that throughout the book of Ezekiel. He says, then you shall know. You can read that in the 37th chapter where it talks about the valley of dry bones. When he raises Israel up, he says, then you will know. That's when you're going to figure it out. <coughs> he says here in verse um, 7, Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the eternal your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Now, when you think about it, God brought them out of Egypt. He did all these mighty works and wonderful things. And they just keep going back into idolatry time and time again. And as we shall see in this chapter, the two, the two commandments that are broken more than any others are the second commandment against idolatry, and Sabbath breaking. And when you look at the Ten Commandments and the way that God has constructed them, uh, most of them are very short. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. Honor your mother and father. And it's a little bit longer on that one. But the two that are way above the others are the Second Commandment against idolatry and the Fourth Commandment, Sabbath keeping. Just count the words. They're way above the others. And we find as we go through here, those are the commandments that they broke more than anything else. And, and yet, you look at what God did, all the miracles that He did for them, and our forefathers and all the rebellion that they had back then and even in our day to day. You look at the, what, what happened to the church, the church of God over the years and how tens of thousands have left the truth and gone right back into the stuff that they came out of. It's amazing how fickle we are as human beings. I don't mean you necessarily because you're here. But as human beings, especially as Israelites, how fickle we are. And it doesn't take long to go right back into the slop that God brought us out of. And so then I said, middle of verse 8, I will pour out my fury on them 
and fulfill my answer, I'm sorry, my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake. This is what kept God from totally destroying our forefathers, those of us who are Israelites. He says, I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. You see, God had performed all these miracles. He had revealed Himself to not only Israel, but to the Egyptians and the surrounding nations. He had revealed Himself by His mighty works. And so, to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and then destroy them would have been damaging to His reputation, to His name. So he said, I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before them. Let's notice down in uh, verse 13. Yet the, well, let's start verse 12. It says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Eternal who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments. And that's where we are today in our land. We despise, I say we, our nations despise God's judgments. We don't just neglect them, we despise them as our nations today, sadly. They despise my judgments, which if man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them or on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I acted for my name's sake, for my reputation, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. Do you realize that God, I think we all know, God is going to punish our nations. And He's going to punish the whole world for that matter. But especially He's going to start with Israel, punish us. But He's not going to totally destroy us for His name's sake. He has a plan that he's working out, and Israel is a part of that plan. But when you look at what our people are doing, right right here in North Carolina, it just amazes me that here we have a governor who is willing to stand up for morality when it comes to these bathroom bills. But it's not just bathrooms, it's locker rooms and all the rest of it. He's willing to stand up. And last I heard, he's still behind the polls. And why is that? Well, because economics, in part. It's also that our peoples are so easily led astray by a small band of individuals, activists, that that we buy into all this foolishness. Absolutely foolish. But we've rejected God... And God has turned us over to a debased mind, a mind that is void of right judgment. And so some people don't like the economics of it, and others think, oh, we just have to love everybody no matter what they do. Well, yes, we do have to love them, but we don't have to love what they're doing. And if we truly love them, we're not going to encourage them to do something that's harmful to themselves and to those around them. But that's all lost. God is going to spare us in the sense that He's not going to wipe all 
of Israel out for his name's sake. Just like he didn't then. But we deserve it. We deserve as a people to come to an end because of our actions. And I don't mean every last individual within our countries, but I'm speaking of and as in a general sense. We, we have failed to be the kind of leader in the world that we should have been. And instead, we're forcing this stuff on other nations, literally. We're forcing others to go along with our immorality. We're not only spreading it through our movies or entertainment, but we're actually by pressure, we're pressuring other countries to go along with this sort of thing. And so it's all over the world that it's happening. But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles. Notice, a little bit later, Verse 21 says, Notwithstanding the children rebelled against me, they did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them, but they profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles, in whose sight I had brought them out. Again and again and again, all the way through here. Verse 44. Then you shall know that I am the Eternal. See, then you will know when all these things happen. He says, then you shall know that I am the Eternal when I have dealt with you for my name's sake. Not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. I'm not going to deal with you according to what you really deserve. I'm going to punish you, yes. You're going to have these problems, but for my name's sake, I'm going to hold back from everything that you do deserve. In Psalm 79, Psalm 79, again we see that God preserves His name, His reputation. It's important. And if God's reputation is important, then should not our reputation be important to us? In Psalm 79, it says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens. This was when Jerusalem was overthrown. And all the terrible things that happened at that time. Their blood, verse 3, they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. Just dead bodies laying out there for the birds to, to feed on. And the worms to devour. And the flies to consume. It says, how long, verse 5, eternal, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. In other words, there are others that God could certainly bring wrath upon because they're no more righteous. But Israel should know better. Israel should know better. And so when it was destroyed, the psalmist is is writing there, pleading with God. 
for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Verse 8, Oh, do not, do not remember former iniquities against us. Please pass over our former sins. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. Notice that God's reputation is one of having tender mercies. For we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation. A recognition that God is the salvation for the nation. For the glory of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins. For your namesake. Uphold your namesake, God. This is what we rely upon. We rely on your reputation of mercy and compassion. That's your reputation. And we, we know you've punished us, but please have mercy. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in, in your sight, our sight, the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. So intervene, God, for your name's sake. That's what the psalmist is saying there. God is very much aware of his reputation. And he's not going to allow us to spoil it in spite of all of our sins. In like manner, you and I need to guard our names. But how do we do so? Perhaps the starting place is to decide or to at least meditate on what you would like to be named. Now, this is an academic exercise because we can decide what we want to be, but ultimately it's what God is going to do in us and through us. So don't anybody misunderstand. But at the same time, there is no harm in us deciding the way that we would like to be thought in terms of our, our character and the way that we live our lives. So a good exercise is write down what you would like written on your tombstone. I know that's nothing new. I'm sure you've heard that before. But what would you like to have on your tombstone? Realizing that they're going to charge you probably by the letter. And there's not a lot of space on that tombstone. And the smaller the letters, the more easily they will decay. I'm sure many of you have been in old graveyards. If you ever go to... England or Europe or one of those places, they, they have tombstones that are really old and all the letters are blurred because they've just deteriorated over time. But what is it that you want written on your tombstone? might be a good idea sometimes to sit down and meditate on that and think, okay, what, how do I want to be remembered? The next step is to live every minute of every day as a person that you have thus described. If that's what you really want on your tombstone, then you've got to live it. And do you realize that one mistake can destroy a good reputation? I remember one of the first sermonettes I ever heard was, was a man talking about building a, a house and how long it takes. And he went through all the steps of construction. It takes a number of weeks or months, some cases years, depending on the size, depending on a lot of factors, but it takes a lot of work to build a house. But you know what it takes to destroy it? 
is a single match. Single match. In a matter of minutes, an hour or so, not even an hour, but in a matter of minutes, what took a long time to build can be destroyed. And we need to think about that in terms of our reputation, how easily it is to destroy a good reputation, to destroy a good name. When you think of David, David was a, a man after God's own heart. We're able to look back and we're able to see the big picture of David. And I hope we can see the positive and, and not get hung up on all the negative. But one moment in time, he severely damaged his reputation, didn't he? Think about Aaron. Aaron had, I suppose, a good reputation. We read of nothing bad about him until the golden calf. And when we think of Aaron, what do we think of? Well, threw the gold into the fire and this calf jumped out. That's what we often think of, don't we? And yet God looks on Aaron in a much more positive way. It's, it's interesting that God did not remove Aaron from that position that he was in. But you know and I know that a lot of people blamed him for that. A lot of people looked down on him. It must have been tough. It wasn't as easy. Just like with David, everything became much more difficult after his sin. He had trouble in his household. He had continual warfare. The child died. All the things that, that came upon David because of his sin. And so one mistake can severely damage our name, our reputation. And that's one reason I think that God's going to give us all a new name, as we shall see. Think for a moment about the names that we have to guard, protect, and build. When we were in China for the Feast of Tabernacles back in 19, I think it was 84, I think the Wakefields were there as well, and uh, there were a number of people, I think about 500 people that attended the feast in China. We were, uh, we had the feast in Nanjing, and it was very much a traditional part of, of China at the time. China was just opening up to the world. They were allowing a little bit of free enterprise beginning in the farms. While we were there, I remember they had an article in the, the China Daily, and it was in the English version of it, and it was talking about how they were encouraging the Chinese to wear Western garments. Because one of my first impressions of China, well, two, the two, two big impressions of China when we first landed and were taken through security and all the stuff you had to go through, immigration, uh, not that we're immigrating, but, you know, the, the area where you have to present your passport and all that sort of thing. The, the two things I noticed is that they needed something a little bit more than about a 25-watt light bulb because everything was dull and, and uh, kind of dark and dingy, every place. And the second thing was that everybody was wearing a Mao suit. There were two colors, blue and this kind of army green color, and it was one size fits all. They, they needed a good tailor. And, and so they were wanting the people to begin wearing Western garments because it was more colorful. 
That's, that's where India, uh, India, that's where China was in 1984. Today, you'd never even recognize it as the same country. It's all changed. But one thing that we were told very early on is you don't bargain. When you go in to buy something in a store, whatever the price is, that's the fair price. That's what you pay. It's not like Jerusalem or Mexico or other parts of the world where everybody loves to bargain. They felt that this is a fair price, this is what they charge, and that's what it was, kind of like some car companies. This is the price, no bargaining. And it was considered a fair price. We got to Beijing, and it was becoming more Western already. And one of the fellows on our bus saw some bananas that a street vendor was selling. And he, he, we getting back on the bus from visiting something, and he went over there and he bought a little bunch of bananas. And when he got on the bus, our guide, it was a young lady, asked him, how much did you pay for them? And he told her. And she jumped off the bus, and she walked over to that vendor, and it was all in Chinese, but she was basically telling him what for. You have disgraced yourself, you've disgraced your mother, your father, your brothers and sisters, your entire family, and you've disgraced this nation. And she brought some more money back to the man who bought the bananas. Now, they were, whatever he paid was a pittance. It was no big deal to him, but it was a big deal to her because she saw somebody charging him much more than he should have been charged. And she was letting him know that he had disgraced himself and his family and his country. In the same way, you and I represent not just ourselves, but other things, other entities. We're ambassadors of our heritage, our parents, and our grandparents. Young people don't always realize that. I know that my wife's parents, her mother, used to tell her that all you have is your reputation and you represent this family, in so many words. And that was drilled into her. And I know that there are others that have that drilled into them, that your, you know, this, whatever your name is, this Name needs to be upheld. Reputation. And that's a good thing to teach our children. And it's very important that our young people realize that you're not just representing yourself, you're representing mom and dad. And you know one thing I think that most young people want to do is, is they want to love their parents. They don't want to do them harm. I can remember... Growing up, my, my friend Bob and I would talk about running away. He, he was the one that talked about it more than anybody else. We were in high school, and we were going to run off to the Redwoods up in Northern California and carve out a place there and eat deer and probably just uh, die because that's all we would eat or something. <laughs> and, and we were, we were going to play baseball and, and uh, you know, kind of carve out a, a ball diamond out in the middle of nowhere and, and come back and be great baseball players. And I mostly listened. and. But I knew I would never run away from home. You know why? I did not want to hurt my parents. I knew that if I did something like that, because I had friends that ran away from home. They always got caught. They were never, never good at running away. But I always knew that if I did something like that, it would deeply hurt my parents. 
and I knew I'd just never do it. It was all talk. It was never serious. Mostly it was listening on my part. I think most people, most young people, don't want to hurt their parents. And, and the best way to not hurt them is to hold up the family name, the reputation of the family. It's so important. Not only do we represent our families, but we represent our countries. You know, we, we uphold our country. And, and furthermore, we should uphold God's name and the name of the church. What you and I do as members of the living church of God is either going to uphold the reputation of the church or bring it down. Let me give an example. My first feast was in 1964 at Squaw Valley. And I'd been to one service, then the Day of Atonement, and then the next service was on the way to the feast, and then the feast. So I knew very little about the church other than all the things I'd read. I knew that sort of thing, but I'd never been around the church much. And when we got to Squaw Valley, uh, we, we were driving around there, and there were signs all over the place, Welcome! Radio Church of God, because that's what we were called at the time. It was Radio Church of God, later changed to Worldwide Church of God. And, of course, you now we call ourselves Living Church of God. But uh, it said, Welcome, Radio Church of God. We sell booze here, or beer, or wine, or liquor. And it was all over the place. And, you know, we were so so ignorant at that time that we thought, Oh, wow, we're, this, is, this is nice. Because, you see... It's hard for a younger generation maybe to understand the rationale behind it, but back in the 50s and 60s, religious people, unless they were Catholic, didn't drink that much, especially Baptists. You know, that was, it was death on, on, on alcohol. They might drink it on the side, but you didn't let anybody know about it. And for a church to teach that it was okay to drink because it says there in the Feast Tabernacle Scripture there where it says whatever your heart desires for wine or for strong drink or similar drink. This was something that people coming out of the world's religions were really excited about. And young people were excited about that. Wow, we've got a cool church. We can drink. And that's what we, we, we kind of looked on it almost on badge of honor. Now, I went back to Lake of the Ozarks some years later. Uh, back in the mid-90s, and I, I saw one store that said the same thing, Welcome, Living Church of God, we sell wine here. And I thought, wow, our reputation is still there. They remember us from those days. But I think we have a better reputation today, don't we? And I think that we probably use it much more responsibly than perhaps some did back then. And not everybody. I know that there are some people that will abuse it. But is that what we want our reputation to be at the Feast of Tabernacles? There were a bunch of boozers. In fact, there was always a play on word, the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Booze. A little bit of a play on word. It was kind of hard to know the difference at times, the way that some people live. We have a reputation to uphold, don't we? We want to hold up the reputation of the living church of God because it is God's church and we want to uphold it. 
We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, if that's what religion is all about, I don't want any part of it? I certainly have heard that over the years. Because people who claim to worship God or to be God's people don't reflect what even normal people would expect of someone who believes in God. Now, I understand that maybe that's their problem as well. Maybe they're not doing what they should do, but nevertheless, uh, we've, we've got to do... In other words, there, there are those who will use that as an excuse. I know that. But why, why give them ammunition, so to speak? So what do outsiders think of our country, whatever your country might be? Uh, what do they think of the living church of God? As well as what do they think of you and of me as individuals? How do we represent the church? How do we represent the church on the Internet? I think I've mentioned that before, but frankly, I get embarrassed sometimes with what I've seen on the Internet. I've actually seen profanity on the Internet coming from some who might claim to be the church of God. And, and I rarely see these things. I mean, I just don't see it very often. It's only when other people bring it to me, because I don't go out there. I don't go out on Facebook personally. I don't have the time. If you have time, okay, that's fine, but I don't. But people bring things to me, and I suppose it's probably just the minority uh, situation, but how, how does that represent the church? Whatever you say, whatever you do on the Internet represents not just you, but the church that you represent and your belief in God and God's reputation because we can harm it by, by the things we do. Have we brought credit to the name of Christ, or have we brought it shame? In Romans, the second chapter, Romans 2, and verse 24, you know, there are a lot of good things that we can say uh, about the church. And one of the things, I, maybe I've mentioned it here before, I don't know, but one of the things I've really been impressed with is, is, is the strength of our families in this congregation. We have so many really super fine young people, which is a reflection of the parents. And I know that no parent is perfect, and I know that even in perfect families, people can make mistakes and do things. But nevertheless, I, I think that if, if people don't realize, we, we have a good reputation here, and I hope we can always maintain that. And it has nothing to do with me because I've only been here a short time. It has to do with the parents who are here. And, and young people, I hope you appreciate the parents you have. They're good parents. They're loving parents. They care for you very deeply. Here in Romans, the second chapter, verse 24, it says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of the Jews of that day. As it is written, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. He's talking here about those who were professing one thing but living a different way. And he says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. So what we do can blaspheme God's name. That's pretty serious when you think about it. In 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6, well, I'm just going to refer to that 
First uh, Timothy 6, verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. The name of God and doctrine, His doctrine, be not blasphemed. We can blaspheme the name of God. We can blaspheme the doctrines of God by our behavior. Now, I want to finish here real quick with some references in Revelation. Let's turn very quickly. I'll just read them, refer to them. Uh, Revelation 14.1 says, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, notice, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. Having God's name written in our foreheads. In other words, in our minds. I don't, I don't think we're going to find a you know, Hebrew writing across our forehead tattooed on there. But God's name written in our, our very minds. Revelation 22, verse 4 says, They shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And His name in their foreheads. God's name. Revelation 3, verse 12, speaking of Philadelphia. He says, Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Even God has a new name at that point in time. Revelation 2, verse 17. Revelation 2, 17, it says, To him that overcomes... I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. There's coming a time when God is going to give you and me different names. I don't know how God's going to remember all these names. I don't know how he comes up with all these names, because the names are going to, no doubt, based on what we've seen in in the Bible, they're going to define who we are. And... If we're going to be in the kingdom of God, which I think most of us will be, those names are not going to have a negative context. All of our sins are going to be forgiven. We can't change our reputation necessarily in this. Well, we can change it, but I mean, we are what we are physically in this life. But when we're in the kingdom of God, it's going to be a positive name. He's going to see the positive in each one of us. And I wonder what that name is going to be. I don't know about you, but I I wonder... What name is he going to give me? I can come up with all kinds of names that I think I'd like to have. But you know what? He's going to come up with a better one. He's got a better idea than I do what my name should be. And the same thing for you. So, let's think about the importance of a name. There is power in a good name. 